All right, y'all. Uh, thanks for joining the 12th class on the Doctrine of the Church. Then uh, thanks for sticking with me. I know this has taken a lot longer than I initially anticipated, but trying to finish this out. Um, let's see. So the Doctrine of the Church to me is where we get a lot of the cash value from this uh, course of classes because um, part of what we're trying to do here, right? Like the reason why we're studying all these different topics is because we're trying to understand what our mission is as a church. Um, and your understanding of mission and your understanding of what the church is are very, very closely related. Um, so we understand our mission to be to demonstrate, declare and embody the gospel of Jesus Christ in North America, right? That's kind of what I've been trying to talk about these last, these last uh, couple of years we've been doing these classes. Uh, and in North America, the view of the gospel, um, not just in North America, in the West broadly, the, the, you, the view of the gospel has been truncated or reduced. Um, and it's basically, it, it's not wrong, it's just reduced, right? So like the view of the gospel is trust in Jesus and you get to go to heaven when you die is mostly the message that you will hear about what the gospel is. Jesus's death is payment for your sins. And so therefore, if you trust in him, um, you can be accepted by God. And when you die, instead of going to hell, you'll go to heaven. Um, it's, not, it's not wrong in the sense that like any of those premises is incorrect, but it leaves a lot out, right? And therefore, if you have that truncated or diluted um, understanding of the gospel, your understanding of the church is very diluted and truncated as well. Because then what is the church there for? The church is there um, to make sure that to, to make sure that there's like an altar call moment. There's a moment where uh, you're compelled to make a decision, right? Whether you trust in Jesus or not. Um, and then after that, it's just, there's no real reason for the church. Like, and so that's why a lot of uh, churches, especially in the United States, I'm not as, as aware of what's going on in Canada, but especially in the United States, they don't really have a compelling reason for people to be uh, a part of the church week after week. Um, and so a lot of them will rely on attractional strategies, right? Like really great music, really get great aesthetic experience um, in order to create a crowd. Um, but there's no, um, and again, I'm not talking about all churches, but I, I do think this is true by and large. There's not as much of an emphasis on belonging to the church, right? Like seeing the church as your household or uh, your family. And there's not as much of an emphasis on discipleship. Because discipleship is kind of an add-on. Like, okay, you've been saved. Now, you know, try and live like Jesus. Well, and, and if you press under that reduced view of the gospel, if you press like, well, why, why should you try and look like Jesus? Well, it's so that more people can be saved, right? Because if you look more like Jesus, you can attract more people um, and you can convert them. And so that's the main reason. And so the mission of the church, the mission, the church, the gospel, none of it is wrong, but it's very narrow. It's cabined, right? Uh, on this idea of like saving lost souls, which is extremely important, but it's not the fullness of what the gospel is, um, because the, the gospel is really about God bring, reuniting heaven and earth, right? Reconciling the world, um, putting himself back into the center of the web of relationships. That's kind of what we talked about last class. He's putting himself back into the center of the web of relationships that constitute the world. And when he does that, that means there's social flourishing. That means there is personal salvation, right? There's forgiveness of sins, but there's also um, sanctification and glorification, looking more and more like Jesus and eventually being like Jesus by grace, what he is by nature. Um, there's the renewal of creation, the end of death. Um, all, all these other things are implications of the gospel when you think about it in its fullness. And when you understand that, then your view of the church is transformed as well, right? Like, because then the church is um, the location or the site where Jesus's renewing presence is most powerfully felt. And it's the site that radiates out his kingdom presence to the rest of the world in anticipation 
of what the final consummation is. So again, just that's why this topic really matters. Your understanding of mission and your understanding of the church are very, very closely related. So this is kind of what we're, we're going to talk about today, what the church is, uh, the relationship between the Holy Spirit and the church, the relationship between the church and the kingdom of God, the relationship between the church and the world, uh, the commitments of the church, the division of the church. We, we did a lot of classes on that in the past, so I'm, I'm just going to kind of touch on that as a reminder. Um, the ecumenical moment in the 20th century as an attempt to heal that division and why it failed, frankly, uh, how in the aftermath of the ecumenical moment, what the state of the North American church is, uh, is. and um, the ecumenical moment also created, like the, the great fruit of the ecumenical moment is the Church of South India. So what is this Church of South India's experience been? Where has it succeeded? Where does it still face challenges? And then I'll close off with some reflections for the future of the church in North America. Um, so what is the church? The church is the continuing presence of Jesus Christ in the world, right? Jesus Christ has ascended. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. He is ruling and reigning over the world. But how is that rule and reign felt in the world? It's through the church. Okay, so the, the church is the mode of Jesus's continuing presence. Um, it is, uh, a lot of the church fathers talked about how when we're baptized into Jesus, uh, we're baptized into his death and resurrection, which means that we're baptized into his life. And that means we're baptized into his mission. Everything that he came to do and say is now what we are to do and say. Um, and what, what's interesting is uh, the word used to describe the church or to call the church in the New Testament, which is ecclesia. When you go to the Old Testament, there are two main words to uh, refer to the assembly of the people of God, the people of God gathered. Um, and those two words are synagogos and ecclesia. Um, and they both mean the same thing, basically, gathering, assembly, um, that kind of thing. By the time of Jesus, um, synagogos was usually the word used to refer to Jewish gatherings. That's where today we get the word synagogue, right? Um, and so when the Christians started gathering, maybe partly to distinguish themselves from the Jews, they used the word ecclesia. I also think there's another reason why they use the word ecclesia. By the time um, uh, of the early church, like right after Jesus ascended, the word ecclesia in Greek was also used to refer to the governing bodies of Greek city-states, right? So in Athens, for example, it was, it was a democracy. And when the people were gathered together to, uh, as like a city assembly to decide the affairs of the city, when citizens were all gathered, they were called out together. And the word used to refer to them uh, assembled or called out together was ecclesia. And so, especially as Christianity expands into the Greek-speaking world, um, that word ecclesia was used more and more because there was this idea that the church is the assembly of God's people in this place, like the ecclesia in Corinth, the ecclesia in Thessalonica, the ecclesia in Galatia. Um, this is the real place where God's rule, where, where the real important decisions are being made. Right, like when the ecclesia gathers, when the church gathers, um, its prayers are not just for itself. Its prayers are for the city, right? Its prayers are for the world. Its decisions are not just for itself. It's thinking about how its decisions impact the real life of the city around it, the neighborhoods around it. So that's why I, I think it's interesting to think about uh, what the church is at, um, by looking at the New Testament word used to describe it. Uh, it kind of, again, points you towards this idea of mission, right? Like the, the kingdom of God is arriving. It's not here in its fullness yet, but it's arriving. And the uh, mode or the, the instrument, the symbol of the kingdom, the sign of the kingdom is the church in a particular place, the ecclesia. So in the New Testament, we also find a lot of metaphors used to describe the church. Um, you guys have probably heard of these, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, uh, the new temple. Um, and each of these communicates something about what the church is too. So 
the idea of the bride is um, is is basically the idea that of uh, it communicates the idea of an exchange, right? So the bride brings as as Christians as 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 the church as the bride we bring all of our debts into the marriage, and Christ brings all of His benefits into the marriage, and there's a exchange. All our debts become his, all his benefits become ours. And so the, so the, the bride idea communicates that exchange. It also communicates intimacy. Um, it communicates the idea of waiting, right? Because we're waiting for Jesus to return as a bride. The idea of the body, um, again, points to that idea of participation. So being the body of Christ, united to Christ by the Holy Spirit, we um, are Jesus is continuing. It's not just that we witness about Jesus. We are his life, right? There's this deep, um, there's this deep connection to who Jesus is. And uh, when you, again, when you read the early church, that's why uh, the divine service, the liturgy, the uh, church worship, the church worshiping was such an important part of um, the church's formation because it was in the divine service that the church experiences that intimacy with Jesus, that connection, and forms it for its continuing life as Jesus's body, as it scatters, right, into its different occupations and places and work. Um, and then the last uh, metaphor, which I also think is really important, is the new temple. In the last class, we talked about how um, one of the doctrines, we talked about the doctrine of atonement, um, what happened on the cross and how the cross reconciles us to God. And there were seven theories we talked about, none of which compete with one another, but each of which fill or uh, help explain, fill out and explain how Jesus does this reconciling work. Um, and one of the theories was the doctrine of sacrifice, right? So if you guys remember, it, um, based on the Old Testament sacrificial system, um, there was a lot of death and blood uh, to cleanse the temple. So a lot of the walls of the temple, the floors of the temple would be covered with animal blood as a purification. And the reason for that purification is to create a clean space where God and sinful, where holy God and sinful man can dwell in fellowship together. Um, and so the theory of atonement we were talking about last time, the theory of sacrifice is that Jesus is that sacrifice. He's the lamb of God, right? And so in his person, he creates a clean space where God and man can dwell. Um, and so again, we are united to Jesus in our baptism as the church. And so we become part of that clean space. That's also uh, a really important idea to understand about the church. When we gather as the church and also when we're scattered, we extend um, the peace of God to other people by interacting with us they can enter into that clean space as well because we're the new temple. So that's another uh, very important metaphor used for the church. Um, in all of these things, it is the Holy Spirit who is uh, leading the church. So there's a very close connection, again, between the, the spirit and the church. The spirit prepares the church as we are the bride. He, he is the one that unites us to Christ to be his body. He's the one who fills us so that we can be the temple of God. Um, the Spirit's role is to convict us, convict us of sin so that we repent. Uh, he raises us heavenward, especially in uh, the corporate worship, the gathered worship of the church. He raises up, us up so that we are in the throne room of God. Uh, it talks about that a lot in Hebrews. And when we're in God's presence, we participate in the triune life. That's what's that's what's like really uh, interesting and fascinating to think about. You know, Peter talks about us partaking of the divine nature. Uh, Paul also uses this kind of like very elevated language of being participating in the divine life. Um, and that is our destiny. And it's also something that we get to uh, experience in a anticipated uh, or in an anticipatory fashion when we're worshiping we get to experience like the love, the community of love that is the Trinity. We get to enter into that on the merits of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, and the Spirit is the one who, when we were, were kind of dropped back 
to earth after the worship service and we're living our lives, uh, the spirit is the one who continues to be with us and empowers us to be Jesus's presence in the world. So again, that idea of the temple, right? Like we are the connection point between God and the rest of the world. Um, and so the spirit is also the one who gives us all, uh, many different gifts for the building up of the church. He talks about that in Ephesians, right? Bishops, priests, deacons, apostles, prophets, evangelists, scripture itself, the liturgy, hymns, uh, creeds, all of these properly seen are ultimately given to us by the spirit so that the church can be a healthy place. All right, so I was saying that the church is the sign of the kingdom. Uh, and I was talking about the idea of the now and not yet kingdom, uh, which is basically this idea that the kingdom is present in the world, the kingdom of God that Jesus was preaching and that we continue to point to. Um, the kingdom of God is present in seed form in the world but it, it hasn't reached its full flowering. We're still waiting for that. The church is not itself the kingdom, right? Um, and, and the reason why that's important to distinguish is that if you confuse the church and the kingdom, um, you, can be, <laughs> you can start to think like, well, what's so great about this kingdom? Because the church is a messed up place, right? Like there's a lot of problems and conflicts still. Uh, and you can also, uh, the church can then try to um, abrogate to itself or, or, or uh, take, grasp too much power, right? Because the church starts to see itself as the kingdom of God. The, the church is the rule of God. And so therefore it has the right to order the rest of the world. Um, and that's, that's not exactly how we see the church. The church is a sign, instrument, and foretaste of the kingdom. Um, Leslie Newbingen is the one who kind of like gave this language to me uh, in a book he wrote called The Gospel in Pluralist Society. I think it's also in The Household of God, which is about the church. But basically the idea of the church being a sign of the kingdom means that um, the church itself in word and deed witnesses to the rule and reign of God. It, it points the world to the kingdom of God. That's what it means to be a sign. It's also an instrument. So that means that the church works to bring about reform in the world so that God's will may be done on earth as it is in heaven as we pray in the Lord's prayer. So you see that throughout history, right? Like the church advocating for the abolition of slavery in Great Britain or uh, the church, um, different reforms the church has tried to uh, bring about throughout history. In Europe, the um, mass public schooling movement was oftentimes begun by the church, uh, ending domestic abuse. Like even though they didn't use that language, when the church first entered into like pagan European society, one of the things that reformed was, were, was the way husbands treated their wives so that they didn't beat their wives, right? So the church is also an instrument of this kingdom. And then finally, the church is a foretaste of the kingdom. Um, when you uh, become part of the church or when you, uh, when you enter into the fellowship of the church, you actually experience the beauty and power of God. It's a limited fashion, right? Like it, it's more like an appetizer that whets your appetite for the full, full coming meal. It's not itself the full meal, but it is an appetizer. It's, it's a piece of the meal. Uh, and so in the same way, the church is a foretaste of the kingdom of God. So sign instrument foretaste. What about the relationship between the church and the world? Um, and I got a lot of this from Tim Keller. He has a really good lecture called Cultural Transformation. I think it's from like 2007. Um, and he was drawing from a book by James Davison Hunter called To Change the World. So if you guys ever want to check that out, you can check that out. Um, basically, what Keller and Hunter pointed to is throughout church history, there have been really four approaches or four different ways the church has uh related to the world and they don't think these four ways are all good they actually think that the fourth way is the good way uh, and the way that's been effective and the way that is biblical so the first way is defensive against so the church is against the world it's the role of the church to um by by taking political power in whatever form depending on like whether you're part of a democracy or a monarchy or whatever whatever means you have, the church takes power. Uh, and 
it, it imposes its values on the rest of society through force and by taking political power. So in the United States, this role is, uh, or th this approach to the world has been associated with like the religious right, right? Um, purity from, well, let me criticize that a little bit. So the problem with that is uh, it kind of misunderstands the way real change in the world happens. The church is an instrument of the kingdom of God. It is called to make change in the world. But um, what Keller and Hunter both point out is that politics is downstream of culture, right? So politics can channel the way that the culture of a society is, but ultimately, it, if, you if you think of a river, like the headwaters of everything is the culture. And so if the culture is trending a certain way, politics is going to express itself a certain way. And so if you're trying to change society, uh, the culture of society through politics, you're always going to be behind and you're not actually going to be as effective. And you may actually create some backlash as well. Um, and so <clears throat> Keller and Hunter both basically both say, like you should, Christians should be everywhere. They should be in politics, just they are like in medicine or whatever other sphere of human activity but in a humble way, knowing that if you really want to change a society, you need to change the culture, not just the politics. So that's the defensive against uh, version. Purity from is the church believes that the world is a very corrupting influence and to be too engaged with the world uh, risks the church um, losing its own identity. And so the church largely withdraws from the world it creates its own parallel societies, its own parallel institutions. And the reason it does that is because it believes that this is the way that the church can be faithful. Um, this approach, you know, I think the paradigmatic example is the Amish, right? Or uh, <clears throat> different Anabaptist groups, which basically create their own little, little mini communes or communities, small communities, um, and try to avoid as much contact with the rest of the culture as possible. Uh, the problem with this approach is that we are called to, <clears throat> like I said, we are called to be signed instruments, <clears throat> signs and instruments, not just foretastes of the kingdom of God. And that means that there has to be some level of engagement. We, there can't be a complete withdrawal. Uh, the third approach historically has been to try and be very relevant to the world. So the church identifies very closely with the world. Um, this is the part of the church that always thinks like the church is so out of it. The church is so not speaking to the desires of the world. Um, the problem with this approach is that you, you might over accommodate in order to be appealing and acceptable to the rest of the culture. You may over accommodate to uh, cultural idols, right? Um, we talked about that at different youth conferences, like you may accommodate yourself to evil uh, in order to appeal to the rest of the world. And in doing so, you lose your own identity as the church, your own distinctive identity as the church. Finally, there's a faithful presence within. Um, and this is the approach that Keller and Hunter say was the approach of the early church. And they, they, they believe it's the approach we should be taking now and that it's the most effective approach. And it's basically faithful presence within. The church is not withdrawn, it's present in all areas of the world, uh, in all spheres of life. So um, there's no part of human life where you can separate out like the rule of Jesus from your life, right? Um, so the church is present in all areas of life, but without losing its own distinctive identity. So it has its own ethos, it has its own values. Um, but its presence is not one of trying to seek control. It's one of trying to serve, right? And, um, and what Hunter and Keller point out is like, when you look at the early church, the way the church transformed Roman society, um, there were two main ways. One was by suffering and dying <laughs> uh, and suffering and dying in such a way that um, with such like integrity and even beauty that the Roman people who were killing them were attracted to the Christians and curious about like, why were these people being slaughtered by bears and lions singing hymns, right? Like what, what explains this? Um, so 
that's one way that the church grew. The other way is that the, the Christians developed this, they had this whole, they had their own distinctive identity, um, but they were present within the Roman cities. And if there were abandoned children, the Christians were the ones who adopted them. Uh, if there were disputes between people, the Romans eventually learned that if you go to a Christian to resolve this dispute, you'll have a fair sentence because the Christian won't won't be um, won't won't take sides depending on who is like his friend or whatever, right? Uh, the Christian won't take accept any bribes. Um, the Christian will be someone who resolves the dispute in a very fair way that is satisfactory to both people. And so, as time went on, um, eventually the Roman people more and more, especially as Roman society was collapsing, turned to the church for leadership. So as it was, as the church was serving the world, eventually it, it didn't take power, but the church was given power by Romans who wanted to create some sense of like peace and calm and stability in the midst of a, a collapsing empire. And so looking to that example, they find like inspiration for our current moment as well. So being a faithful presence within society is the way the church should relate to the world. Um, here, I'm gonna just list out um, the values of the church. What I mean by that are, um, these are the things that the church is committed to in its ongoing life. Um, so worship, the idea, the act of ascribing supreme worth to the triune God, um, community, being a united and reconciling people, who we don't just exist for our own benefit, but uh, we exist for the benefit of people who are not our members. Evangelism, which is declaring the truth of the gospel to the world. Uh, discipleship following Jesus in every area of life. Justice, so this is one that um, isn't always talked as, as much about, but it is a commitment of the church when you look at it historically. Uh, finding tangible ways to demonstrate God's healing power in the world, especially by standing for whoever in society does not have anyone else to stand for them. Uh, and historically, that's been the weakest, the poorest, uh, the disabled, um, strangers or immigrants and orphans, um, people who don't have parents to provide for them. And then finally, uh, I have a mission here, but really it's, it's talking about like cultural renewal, right? Like um, the church is meant to be salt and light in the culture. Um, salt preserves what is good in a culture. It's medicine to heal what is bad in a culture. And it also brings flavor, right? Like it brings beauty to a culture. And so uh, instead of mission, I, I think the better, more specific way to talk about it is uh, cultural renewal. That's also one of the values of the church. Okay, so in this, I've been talking so far about like what the church is, how it should be relating to the world, how it's led to, by the Holy Spirit. Um, and what values it has. Now let me kind of shift gears a little bit and talk about the, um, the lived reality of the church as it's moved through history um, and how it has, how especially, especially the division of the church has been harmful um, in our ability to be effective signs, instruments, and fortes. We are signs, instruments, and fortes of the kingdom of God because we are the church. Like, but we're not as effective as we could be because we are divided, right? And like we talked about uh, way back when, when we did, when we first started doing this class, the sad part is a lot of our division, when you look into it, is more based on politics and ethnic and linguistic differences rather than um, just purely doctrinal differences. Doctrinal differences are there, but a lot of times it's swirled or uh, mixed up with these ethnic and linguistic and political differences as well. So you have the Chalcedonian split early on um, between the, the churches that are part of the Roman Empire and the churches that are not part of the Roman Empire, right? Like the Copts in Egypt, the Church of the East in Persia, and then the small Syrian community in India. Then you have the Great Schism between the Western and Eastern parts of the Roman Empire. So the East um, is Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, and the West is Roman Catholic. And the reason for the schism uh, is because the Roman Catholics added a phrase to the Nicene Creed, which we uh, still use, the Holy Spirit uh, proceeds from the Father and the Son. 
the original version just says the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. Uh, and so it's not that the Orthodox objected to the idea of adding and the Son. Some people did, some people didn't. They objected to the way the Roman Catholic Church added that phrase, which was just a decision of the Pope instead of a gathering of all the bishops. Um, so that's what led to, that's part of what led to that split. There were a lot of political factors as well. The Protestant Reformation, um, basically what you notice is that the countries that become reformed are more Germanic. Um, they're in Northern Europe. The countries that stay with the Roman Catholic Church are in Southern Europe. Um, and then everything enters into a new mode when you get into America. Because in America, you there's an attempt to create peace, like in Europe, there were a lot of religious wars based off of what religion you were in. And depending on what part of the continent you lived in, um, you subscribed to the faith of the ruler in that continent, right? Whereas in America, there's an attempt to create religious freedom. But what that leads to is um, seeing, seeing churches as like brands that you can choose between in a kind of like religious marketplace. So there, there's this, there is freedom, but there's also now this like kind of shopping, religious shopping, right? Which um, church speaks to or meets my needs, my social needs, right? Like if you wanna move up, you might wanna join the Episcopalian or Methodist church, right? Um, if you wanna stay with your working class type brothers and sisters, you know, maybe you wanna stick in the Baptist church, those kinds of things, right? Like, so now all these like, now the church becomes a little bit more like uh, a, a mall where you're choosing between different brands. Um, then you have the Pentecostal revival, which uh, is a powerful experience of the Holy Spirit that happens in California. And it happens among um, revivalist evangelicals. So um, it, it starts among the holiness churches, which are churches that are basically as Methodism moved West, it became uh, more and more loose, right? And so eventually when you get to like Oklahoma, they stop calling themselves Methodists. They start calling themselves holiness people. And then by the time you get to California, you have holiness people who have this experience of the Holy Spirit. And that's where Pentecostalism starts in like uh, the early 1900s. Um, so this is all happening. This is division, division, division. Uh, and then you have parallel to that, the missionary movement that really takes off in the 1800s. And as we talked about this before too, but as these different traditions, uh, missionaries from these different traditions see the hugeness of the mission field in places like Africa and India and the rest of Asia, um, they start to realize like, hey, this is very confusing for the people we're trying to convert because now we have like a Baptist church and a Methodist church right next to each other. And the people we're trying to convert are, are confused because they're like, are you guys part of the same religion or not, right? Um, and so the missionaries start partnering with one another and it's really like contact with the mission field, making the church, um, see itself as missionary again, that gives this uh, drive towards finding ways to unite the churches again. And so that's what I call here the ecumenical moment, right? Between 1900 and 1960. And um, this was a time when churches were trying to find ways to unite. Um, usually, uh, <clears throat> usually it would be between Presbyterians, Methodists, and Congregationalists or Baptists. Um, the only few examples of the Anglicans joining are in the Indian sub subcontinent. So the Church of Pakistan, the Church of Bangladesh, the Church of North India, and the Church of South India. That's where the Anglicans um, joined in too. And there was a lot of controversy about that. But the ecumenical moment, it, it had a lot of momentum and then it fizzled out in the 1960s. And the reason why, again, is because of social issues uh, that started dividing churches again. Um, what do you think about abortion? What do you think about women being ordained? What do you think about, I guess that's not as much of a social issue, but it was impacted by like the rise of women's rights, um, civil rights, right? Um, attempts, especially in the United States, to end segregation. Those kinds of things started roiling the church and different churches, different groups of people within the church were responding to those conflicts in different ways. And so the ecumenical moment, which had a lot of momentum behind it, started to fall apart. 
as in the aftermath of the ecumenical moment falling apart, which was really driven by what's called the mainline churches. The mainline churches are um, the Anglicans, the Presbyterians, the Methodists, and again, the, the Congregationalists. Um, as that ecumenical momentum kind of fizzled out, you notice that these churches um, also began to experience declines in membership. And there are a lot of different reasons you can point to, um, but the the fact is now those those churches which were kind of like in the center of American religious life in the middle of the 20th century have become extremely weak, um, and they are on the way to like extinction. When you look at like demographic trends, um, the amount of people still joining the church or being baptized in the church. Um, more recently, in light of like scandals and things like that, you've started to see a decline start to happen in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, the evangelicals, it depends on what data you're looking at. So evangelicals are uh, churches that were seen as not in the center of American life uh, in the mid 20th century. But now they've kind of become the bigger group as the, as the mainline has declined so much. Um, and evangelical churches recently, in the last like 10 years, you started to notice, and it depends on what data you're looking at, either they are flatlining or they're starting to decline as well. So this is kind of the way um, the division of the church has led to a loss of power, I think, in our sign in our ability to be a sign instrument and foretaste of God's kingdom. And it's also led to this incredible anxiety felt uh, by Christians in the West, which I think is driving a lot of um, bad judgment calls. When you look at that history of the division of the church, um, what you'll see is there are three main ways, differing ways that people understood what the church was. Okay, so um, the first way, and I, I call these emphases because that's what, what uh, Leslie Newbegin that's the term he uses to describe these churches because he thinks that these three emphases belong together to help describe what the church is. Um, but in church history, you'll see that different churches look to one of these and exclude the others, right? So um, for a Catholic or an Orthodox person, how do you know you're a part of the real church? That's the question. How do you know you're part of the real church? And for the Catholic or Orthodox person, they'll say, the church is not free to define itself. Jesus Christ appointed disciples, right? He appointed apostles and he created a community and that community lives on. Uh, and you can see that and you can trace on, you can trace connection to that community by lineal descent, right? A bishop who is ordained by, or who is consecrated by a bishop, who is consecrated by a bishop, who is consecrated by a bishop, who is consecrated by the apostle John. Right. Uh, so like in the early church, people used to write and talk about themselves that way, too. One of the church fathers was a guy named Irenaeus. He had been he said, I'm a disciple of Poly Polycarp, who is a disciple of the Apostle John. And so that's his way of like saying, I'm a credible person. I'm in line with this community that Jesus created. Right. So if you're not in historic, so for a Catholic or Roman Catholic or an Orthodox person, if you're not in connection with the community that Jesus himself founded as traced by lineal descent, you're not part of the real church. The Protestant uh, emphasis is different because um, there's the Scottish reformer, John Knox, who said um, lineal descent is no guarantor of the true church. So he's differing with the Catholics, right? He's, he's saying it's possible to be a bishop consecrated by a bishop consecrated by a bishop, consecrated by an apostle, and to be totally wrong about what the gospel is, right? So the real way you understand what the church is, is that you are faithful to the message of Jesus as uh, taught and preached in the word of God, by, uh, preached uh, uh, the preaching of the word of God, and also as seen in the right administration of the sacraments, because those early reformers still had a very thick understanding of sacraments as um, the means by which Christ communicates his presence to uh, the church. So for the Protestants, especially the early Protestants, that's what you emphasized, right? Right teaching and preaching of the word, right administration of the sacraments. If that's happening in a church, then you're part of the real church, the true church. 
um, you don't care about, you know, whether there's historical links or uh, uh, self-understanding as being part of the same community that Jesus himself founded. The Pentecostal view focuses on uh, the power of the Holy Spirit. So it, it doesn't matter if you have historical descent. And yeah, you can get, like, it's better to have good preaching and, and sacraments. Uh, sacraments are not emphasized as much, uh, especially in the early Pentecostals. But what you're really looking for is evidence of the power of the Holy Spirit. So things like speaking in tongues, healings, prophecies. If that's not present, then you're not part of the real church. And so what Newbegin is uh, trying to say is like, when you look at the New Testament, you see that all three of those things are not supposed to compete with one another. They're supposed to be held together. But as we've moved through church history, they've been kind of uh, dislodged from one another. And they've been taken as ways to uh, kind of cudgel the other side over the head. You know, like that's something Roman Catholics will beat up Protestants about. Like, hey, why aren't you part of the community that Jesus himself founded? Protestants will say, hey, why aren't you, you know, teaching the Bible the right way, according to us. Each of these emphases also lead to um, certain problems, right? Like, so with the Catholic emphasis, it can lead to, um, it's not true. Again, all these criticisms are not true of everyone, but I'm just talking about tendencies. It can lead to a kind of dead formalism, right? Um, okay, you're in continuity. And so we just do the same rites over and over again without thinking about what its meaning is because that's what we do to be part of the church. Or the Protestant emphasis can lead to, like we talked about a lot before, a lot of division because people uh, find new and new ways to disagree with one another about what the Bible is teaching. Uh, and so there's this, um, there's this huge tendency to like fracture and fragment in the Protestant community. And the Pentecostal emphasis can start to emphasize experience, right, over um, tradition or the Bible or uh, those kinds of things. So, you know, the Holy Spirit told me to do X and there's no way to verify. Uh, and people, because the, because the Pentecostal community emphasizes uh, experience with the Spirit so much, there's not as much testing of that those kinds of statements, like the Spirit told me to do this. The Spirit is commanding you to do this, right? Um, all of that can lead to uh, certain kinds of abuses in that community too. So Newbegin's whole point is these things should be held together. Um, and Newbegin was one of the leaders of the ecumenical movement. That's part of what he advocated for, um, as I said before, the experience of missions in uh, the majority world led to several churches uniting, and it led to a lot of churches in the West, like the Presbyterians and the Episcopalians in the 1950s and 1960s had a lot of conversations about uniting. The same thing about the Anglicans and the Methodists in Great Britain in the 1950s and 1960s. After seeing all these other churches unite, especially like the Church of South India and the discussions for the Church of North India, these other churches in the West were inspired to start talking about union. Um, part of the, one of the most important documents um, when talking about union is the Chicago Lambeth Quadrilateral, because it lays out, especially on the Anglican side, the principles by which it will unite with other churches. So as long as the other churches accept the Holy Bible as containing all things necessary for salvation and faith, as long as they accept the two creeds, the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed as statements of faith, um, as long as they practice the two sacraments uh, in obedience to Jesus's command, holy uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And as long as, the, and this has always been the sticking point, as long as they can accept, you know, that idea of historical descent, right? Like it, as long as they're willing, even though um, they may not have had it, those communities may not have had it, as long as those communities are willing to join with it, then we can unite. Right. So that's what the historic Episcopate is referring to, the idea of rule by bishops. And the reason why that's important is because the bishop is a symbol of the unity of the church, not just of the existing people who are alive, but unity of the church with like those who have died in the faith before us, because the bishop is consecrated by a bishop who's been, you know, that whole line of descent idea. Uh, so why did this fail? Um, this fell apart because um, a lot of times, so the Church of South India was a very important exception. But a lot of times when these churches were uniting, the Anglicans were only willing to play ball if they got a chance, not just to uh, consecrate bishops and have the other 
people except bishops, but they wanted to reordain the ministers from the other churches, which was kind of seen as insulting by the other ministers, right? Um, because it's basically saying, we don't think that you are a real minister of the gospel until we ordain you. Um, so that is one reason that the ecumenical moment started to fizzle out. Uh, the, there was discussion with the Roman Catholics, especially after Vatican II, which was like a big reform moment in the Roman Catholic Church, but there was never any real involvement in these discussions uh, with the Orthodox or the Pentecostals. Um, there's a lot of suspicion of motives, right? Like, why are you trying to talk about uniting the churches? You want, do you want to be in charge of this new church? Is that the reason why you want to do this? So there's a lot of suspicion. And then, like I talked about, there were the new issues dividing the church, social issues. Um, so in, in light of that, what has happened to the church in North America? Basically, we continue in the religious marketplace. After that ecumenical moment collapsed, um, we've kind of returned to the status quo ante, which is you, you have um, a religious marketplace. And as society has become more uh, consumeristic, churches have learned or adapted to become, to cater to that as well. So most American churches, um, even like non-denominational churches, they're really like Baptist churches, right? Like they believe in adult baptism, um, they believe in independent church polity, which is the idea that like uh, every church decides its own way, how it's going to be governed, what it believes, those kinds of things. And th there's affiliation, right? Like for the purpose of selling books, like you have, you put up, put together these con conferences, you put, you put together um, these authors who are endorsed by the conference so that they can sell their books or you can sell the music or you can, so training, I'm making it sound more cross than it is, but I, I do think it is the brass tacks, right? Like you affiliate with churches that think the same way that you do so that you can cross endorse one another for, um, for providing religious goods and services to the people. Um, recently, like a lot of data has shown the, the political polarization in the United States and, uh, has led to a lot of people being turned away from the church. Um, and also just for a long time, there's been a lack of an emphasis on discipleship, like what it means to follow Jesus in all of life. And so you, you more and more, you find that American Christians, especially again, I'm not as aware about Canadian Christians, but American Christians don't know their Bible. They don't know basic like creedal ideas. They're fuzzy on what the Trinity is, that kind of thing. Um, the way that the American, so the American church, the way that the American church makes its peace with all these different denominations and stuff is it, it appeals to this idea that was first uh, formulated during the Reformation, this, this distinction between the invisible church and the visible church. Then the invisible church is the, the gathering of all people who really belong to Jesus. Right. So it doesn't matter what denomination you're a part of. If you really belong to Jesus, you're part of the invisible church. And they distinguish that from the visible church, which is just everyone who shows up at a church on Sunday. But it's going to include a lot of um, people who are not actually called by Jesus. Right. Or people who are not being faithful to Jesus. And so that's kind of what a lot of American Christian theologians or pastors will appeal to when you talk to them about church unity. They'll say, well, we are united invisibly. Uh, it doesn't matter about visible church distinction. I think people in our church tradition would counter that the unity talked about in a place like John chapter 17, verse 21, uh, where Jesus says, let the world know, uh, let, let them be united. I and them and you and me, let them be united with one another, just as I, Jesus Christ, am united to the Father. And just as they are united to me, let them be united with one another so that the world can see that you have sent me. So the unity of the church is to be is supposed to be visible enough that the world can tell, right? And when the world sees the unity of the church, it authenticates, it gives credibility to the church's message. Uh, and so I think that's the response we would give to people who kind of just say, well, there's the invisible church. We don't have to care about the visible church unity. Um, so how has this been working out in South India? 
I think we can say that there was a lot of uh, good that un unity did for the Church of South India. Um, it allowed for the church, because it, it, it contains so many traditions within it, it has allowed the church to be very charitable on a lot of um, what, what you could call secondary matters, right? Um, like precise interpretations of doctrine, there's room for a lot of disagreement and still be part of one church, right? We're united because we're under a bishop, not because we all have the same ideas about things. We're united because we worship in the same you know, liturgy uh, with the same sort of uh, commitment to the, the sacraments and those kinds of things. Saying the same creed, right? Like the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed. Those are the basic, those are the essentials, right? If we disagree about that, then we're out of fellowship with one another. But as long as we hold to these essentials that are talked about in the Chicago Lamb but the Quadrilateral, we have room to disagree about a lot of secondary things. So that's been a huge positive thing because it's allowed the church to be in the midst of very significant like ethnic and linguistic differences. It's allowed for the church to be united as one church. Um, also like the way CSI, CSI is governed blends a lot of the good from each of the traditions. So you have a bishop, but the bishop is not the person who makes all the decisions, right? Like there's also a council and there's also church committees and there's also a general body where every person in the church has the right to stand up and to uh, make their voice heard on the issues facing the church. And so there's this like kind of balance to the way the church is, is governed, which is a product of it pulling from all the different traditions in order to unite. Um, and that has led to a huge, uh, that has led to continuing mission and evangelism. And I think the church is especially doing really, really good things when it comes to um, lifting up what's called like lower caste uh, people. So uh, even though caste has been abolished in India, if you talk to any person on just like a normal human conversation level, you, you'll quickly realize that caste is still a very alive concept in Indian society. And this means uh, lack of educational opportunities, especially in employment opportunities for lower caste people. And the church is the real, and especially the church of South India um, is the real like bulwark or, or, or bulldozer against those caste barriers. Um, so this has been doing really good work in that. It's also been doing really good work in educating women, uh, which opens up opportunities for women for the rest of their lives. However, I'm not gonna talk about its weaknesses in India because I'm not, I don't wanna speak out of turn, I'm not in India, but I am aware of its weaknesses in North America, right? Um, <clears throat> because it united from all these different churches, there's not as much of an emphasis on catechesis, maybe because it doesn't wanna choose between different options, but that's led to, the lack of catechesis means that a lot of our people don't, know what the church is, what it stands for, what the essentials are versus the non-essentials. And that can lead to um, the Church of South India being in North America and just being part of the religious marketplace again, right? Like if you're interested in purchasing, uh, you know, a Malayali, mostly Malayali uh, CSI worship experience, then buy CSI, right? We're just contributing to the marketplace. Um, and I think that's partly because we are not catechized into what the mission and values of the church really are. Um, the, second is, the second challenge or weakness for us is like the bishop is supposed to be a symbol of unity um, with the church of the past and, the, and all the members of the church of the present. We, our churches basically have bishops in India who are deputing Achins to us, who have uh, a kind of spiritual authority over us, but it's complicated because we're also part of the council, which is presided over by the moderator bishop. And so we kind of have two bishops who we are accountable to, neither of whom reside in North America. And that confusion and the lack of a resident bishop has meant it's difficult for us to uh, build up a common identity. And that, all, and that also matters because it means that um, as a community, if we want to engage in a more serious way with the other churches in North America, Ultimately, we need to have a bishop leading us in those conversations, right, with those other communities. And we don't have that. Um, and so every congregation has to try and figure things out to the best that it can. And, and usually congregations are worried about like, 
you know, making sure there's food at the next VBS, right? Or the, that kind of thing, uh, instead of these like higher level engaging with the other churches in North America kind of questions. The third weakness is uh, in our church, we are not just governed by the bishop. We're not just governed by the lay people. We're also governed by the Utchins. Um, and that is a way that that is actually a practical uh, possibility in India because the dioceses geographically are not that large, right? Like, so for example, my church is part of the diocese of Madhi Kerala. Madhi Kerala, Madhi Kerala is basically the size of the city of Houston, maybe a little bigger, right? And so if you have a hundred Utchins rotating in Madhi Kerala, like it doesn't matter as much that they're moving every three years because at the diocesan council, they're still governing you know, churches that are in a geographic area the size of the city of Houston. Well, for us, we have Achins coming from India for about three years, maybe four or five if we extend them, and then they go back. And so they have no ongoing connection to our life. And so, the, and they have no ongoing say in how our community is governed. And we're also spread out through such a huge, through, throughout a continent, right? Instead of just concentrated in an area. So that has also made it uh, very difficult for us to move beyond survival mode and think about like our mission and think about especially the mission of the Church of South India, which is to unite with other churches in a principled way for the sake of mission. So that kind of leads us to reflections for the future. Like the thing we should be, the, the question we should be asking ourselves is as we move forward, how can we as the Church of South India in North America be a sign instrument and foretaste of the kingdom of God as an immigrant church in North America. Um, and I think the, the low hanging fruit is the stuff that we've already been working on that, we're, that we got approved by the council and now we just need to implement. And the low hanging fruit is just getting over the issues, getting people willing to um, stand up and say, hey, I'll be a lay catechist or a lay evangelist authorized by the church to disciple this group of people, especially among the second generation, in our view of all these different doctrines, the doctrine of the church, the doctrine of scripture, all those kinds of things, I will help communicate that and build that up among our people. So we need Obadeshis, we need priests, we need people who are willing to be ordained as priests, and eventually we need bishops who are going to lead us into these like higher level theological and ecumenical dialogues. Um, we need to create and commit to the Sunday school curriculum, which we, we have going down the tracks. Um, in our local congregations, we need to examine like those six things I said, our um, values of the church throughout history, right? Like worship, community, evangelism, discipleship, justice, cultural renewal. How are we doing as a congregation? Are we engaging in all of those six areas? Are we committed to all of those? Those are things that we need to raise up in whatever, um, areas of the church we're involved in, uh, in the, in the appropriate forums. Like we need to ask, like, if you're part of the lady fellowship or if you're part of the youth fellowship or you're part of the choir, you, you can ask like, how is this little area of the church that I'm a part of contributing to those six commit to those six commitments? Ultimately, um, I think for us to pursue our mission, we also need to be thinking about and talking about planting new churches. So historically in our church, a new church is the result of a division. Um, we need to stop thinking about division and start thinking about multiplication, right? Like intentionally sending out groups of people to start new CSI churches in different areas with the, with the understanding that these new churches that we're planning may not be immigrant churches, right? These new churches we're, we're planning may be churches that are open to everyone. And so they're still in connection with the mother church, but now we're engaging um, in a more uh, in a more specific way mission to the rest of North America. And then finally, uh, like I was talking about earlier, theological dialogue, missionary partnerships. Ultimately, I think those do need to be led by us having a bishop. Um, but that is stuff that I think we need to be thinking about as we um, try to figure out how to be a sign instrument and foretaste of the kingdom of God in North America. So uh, I know I covered a lot of stuff for, ranging from like the more purely doctrinal to a little bit more of the practical here at the end. Do you guys have any questions or thoughts?
All right, cool. Uh, if anyone has any thoughts or questions, feel free to shoot me a text. I love talking about this stuff. Thanks for joining, guys. We'll have our next uh, class on September 10th. It will be the last class. So I'll see you guys then.